Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're in this period um, of the year known as the, uh, as the three weeks. And this is the period between um, the 17th of Tammuz, which um, was the day, it's, a, it's kind of a, a, a strange day in, in, in Jewish history, because it was the day where we worshipped the golden calf, and, the, and Moshe came down from Mount Sinai and smashed the tablets, smashed the luchos. And it was actually supposed to be a, a great holiday, because this was going to be the completion of the receiving of the Torah. See, there's a, there's a point that's, that's seldom ever made, but I, I think it's, it's important to have, to have it in mind, which is, our tradition is, is that when we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai, we reached a level um, that was comparable, the sages tell us, to Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, before they ate from the tree of knowledge. So I always ask myself this question, which is that, if that's the case, if we reach such a, a level before the eating of the tree of knowledge, why didn't uh, the Mashiach come right then? In other words, why wasn't that the end of history? Why wasn't that the end of all exile? So, so my current understanding is the following, that there was another step in terms of the full receiving of the Torah that didn't have a chance to take place yet, which was Moshe coming down the mountain with the luchos themselves, with the tablets themselves. And this is hinted at in a very deep way. Um, Rabbi Wolfson mentions this. You see, when the Jews come up to, um, to Aaron Akoin, Aaron the high priest, and, um, and ask him to lead, because if you remember, there's mass confusion, and they're, they're asking him to sort of like, you know, as the, as the religious figure, you know, except for Moshe, who seems to be dead and missing, um, they ask him to lead the worship of the golden calf. And so Aaron uh, puts into effect a, a, a delay technique. He wants to stall because he knows that Moshe is coming. So he says, tomorrow is going to be a holiday. Now that tomorrow was the 17th of Tammuz. Now on the simple level, we understand that, um, that he was just trying to, to delay them. And he was saying, okay, we'll make the holiday for the golden calf tomorrow. That, that's the simple meaning. But on a deeper level, he was trying to communicate to them, and it says this in the Torah itself, tomorrow is going to be a holiday. In other words, tomorrow, if we can just wait for Moshe to come back with the tablets themselves, that will be the finishing of the receiving of the Torah, and that's going to be the holiday. That's what was being hinted at. So something very exalted that just stop short of, of, of happening. You know, very, very tragic, very tragic. Um, you know, and it, we just missed it by a few hours, really. That, 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 that's short, you know. And you know, Adam and Eve were created, our sages teach, just a few hours before Shabbos. And if they had just gotten into Shabbos without eating from the tree of knowledge, then they would have made it. So again, just a matter of a few hours and, uh, you know, to kind of take this from these very sort of grand uh, ethereal levels to, to just uh, our own personal lives. I once heard Reb Shlomo say that if you're in a restaurant and all of a sudden you, uh, you get the check and you, you realize that you forgot your wallet, right? What do you do? He says, order another cup of coffee. So, in other words, wait. Don't panic. Just wait. Give it a little bit more time. 
And that's an exercise that, that we can try to do with ourselves. I heard Reb uh, Noach Weinberg, um, Shalom, say one time, I don't know what he called it, but it was like, sort of like the, the, the five-minute rule. Meaning to say, if you're, if you're exerting yourself in, in something good, like maybe you're, you're learning a little Torah, or maybe you're doing a, a, some kind of work project, or whatever it is, and you can't focus, and you're about to just stop. He says, give it five more minutes. And a lot of times, you can say to yourself, well, I can't work anymore. Well, five more minutes I can do. And sometimes that five minutes can be the gateway for hours and hours more. You know, if you can just push through that little thing. So, so the power of waiting. The power of waiting. But as I mentioned, this period of the year right now, we're in between um, two, two big holidays, basically. And the, the essence of them are great holidays. The 17th of Tammuz and, and the 9th of Av, Tisha B'Av. And the Prophet Zechariah says in the name of Hashem that these are going to be great holidays. So we know that the essence of them is very great. But they, these days are wearing a garment of, of sackcloth and ashes. This whole period in our, in our year. Um, but that's not the true essence. That's not the true essence of this time. And so... A lot of people think that it's a religious act, that they're being very from by being depressed during this period of time. That this is the way to serve God with the great power of depression. And um, it's not the case. It's not the case. And a lot of people are just, they're confused. What, how am I supposed to be during this period of the year? So, so I want to discuss that in a very practical way. Um, so... So we have a teaching, I wish I could tell you who it's from, it's one of my favorite teachings, um, that, that goes like this, and this will just be the introduction, we'll go, uh, we'll go further with this. But there's a teaching that, that says in the, in the Talmud, that when the month of Adar, which is the month of joy, the month that contains Purim, when the month of Adar comes in, we're supposed to increase in Simcha, increase in joy. And when the month of Av comes in, and the Av energy is really this whole three-week period, when the month of Av comes in, we're supposed to decrease in joy, decrease in Simcha. Now, what could it have said? It could have said that we're supposed to increase in sadness. But it doesn't say that. It says that we decrease in joy, which means we're either increasing in joy or decreasing in joy, but it's always joy. In other words, the wavelength the service of God is always on the frequency of joy. That's what it has to be, even during this period of, of the year. And then I heard uh, Yehuda Solomon told me in the name of Reb Shlomo, he says that when you, uh, when you decrease, you decrease besimcha. In other words, even the going down in joy is besimcha. So, and that's based on a careful reading of the, the phrase from the line in the, in, in the Gomorrah. So, when you go down, you go down, besimcha. So, so even, even the act of luring simcha has to be with simcha, with joy. So, so in other words, it's, it's, it can only be joy. And it hit me one time, we've got a, one of the foundational kind of verses, psukim in the whole Torah is, it says, in the Psalms and Tehillim, it says, Yivdu es Hashem besimcha. Serve God with joy. Yivdu means work. So it hit me one time that, that another way to read that is sometimes it's work to serve God with joy. 
In other words, it's not always so easy. It's not always so easy. And what does it mean to serve God with joy, by the way? It just means that you recognize that God is running the whole world. And that everything God does is for the good. And to allow yourself to move from a place of what we call constricted consciousness to expanded consciousness. Constricted consciousness means that all I see are the immediate problems that I have. And I've got no perspective. And it's just like, I, I, just it's, this thing is in front of me. I, it's like a, a tunnel vision. And expanded consciousness is like, well, wait a second, there's a world and I'm breathing and there's a God and I've got friends and there's food in the refrigerator and there's, there's like a million things, you know, there's a million things going on. And if you allow yourself to be a little bit more expansive and to see past whatever the obstacles of the moment are, then all of a sudden you can get to this place of joy. And, um, and of course, joy, there are all sorts of levels of joy. There's, you know, real simcha where you're just like in a blissed out place. But there's also the place where you realize, you know something, whatever is going on, it's not so bad. Or it could be worse. Even that's, that's, even that's another level. Sometimes you can get to simcha just by thinking, wow, just, I could not even have this or that. And then that can bring you to a place of appreciation for what you do have. And of course, one of the great, great tools to bring a person to this place of expanded consciousness is gratitude. And if you just start going through things in your life, just, wow, you know, I can see. I've got my eyes. Thank you, God. Wow, you know, I'm moving my toes right now. I've got, I can, I can walk. Thank God. Okay, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for that. And you just go through things that you absolutely take completely for granted. And you just start to enumerate them. Believe me, if you keep on doing that, all of a sudden you go, oh, you know, wait a second, I was just kind of doing that as an exercise. But I have a lot of things, you know. You, you all of a sudden realize you really do. And that can bring a person also to a place of expanded consciousness in, in not too long. That's actually a very, very effective tool. Um, okay. So, so, whether we're going up in joy or whether we're going down in joy, it's always got to be joy. So now, I want to share with you uh, something that I heard this past week from uh, Rabbi Alex Mandro. And uh, I'm going to add to it, but I, I want to tell you what he said because I think it's uh, some, something very important. And, uh, and in, you know, there's a very, dark park, a very dark pocket in our hearts. These are, I haven't gotten to his words yet. These are still my words. But, and this teaching that, uh, that I want to share with you can really kind of bring some light to this, this dark place that I think is within most of all of us. So, so Rabbi Mandro brings a, a teaching from the Marsha. The Marsha is one of our greatest rabbis and he lived at the end of the 1500s and the beginning of the 1600s. And the Marsha points out something very, very, very striking in our calendar, which is that there are two 21-day periods, he points out. The first 21-day period is what we call the three weeks. That's this period that we're in right now between the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av. And it's a time of, of sadness. Um, where historically the, the, the Beis Amigdash, the Holy Temple, both Holy Temples in, in Yerushalayim and in, in Israel were destroyed, and 
And uh, many, many tragedies throughout history have, have occurred during this, this period. And, um, and then fascinatingly, there's another 21-day period, which is from Rosh Hashanah to Simchas Torah, which is the complete opposite energy. These are days of holidays and celebration, but they're both 21 days, says each 21 days. So this is pointed out by the Marsha, one of our, one of our greatest. And he also points out that a, one verse from the Torah, one Pasuk from the Torah, plays a key role in both of these, in both of these periods. And that's Ata Resa Das, which is, um, you've, you've been shown to see, Ein Od Nevado, that there's no, no other force, no other power in the world except Hashem Himself. There's only God. And this is one of the key Sukkim, one of the key verses um, declaring the oneness of God, that there is no other power, that it's God and God alone that, that, that does everything. And w- that is in the Torah reading, that Pasuk for Tishabav, for the ninth of Av. And it's also kind of the key phrase, or perhaps certainly one of the key phrases, um, for Simcha's Torah. Before we take out all the Torahs, for, for dancing with them and for the amazing celebration that takes place there, that's the, that's the, that's the Pasuk that we read. That's the verse that we read. So, so on a very simple level, you say, well, look, it just shows you God controls all things. I mean, that's the pinnacle of, of the ninth of Av, and, which is the sadness time and the celebration time. So, so there's only God. There's only God. And you see that we're drawn to this, to this same verse in both occasions. Okay. So... So now let's go back. I want to share with you uh, an insight that Rabbi Mandra had. So he said, he said when it comes to Jewish unity, just people coming together in general, really, he says, you know, sometimes it's easier to come together in a time of tragedy. And he says that, that you know, you have people just just bonding with each other in sad times, and then also an amazing time of unity takes place just in terms of um, historically, that when we fast on Tisha B'Av or, 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 or the 17th of Tammuz, that we really kind of focus and unite with all the previous generations over thousands of years who have suffered. So it's not just a, 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 a unifying force tragedy with, with the people who who you're with at the time and the community as it exists in the, in the present tense, but also with all the communities as they existed over history. And they all become one. A very strong bond is forged. Okay. That I think we've all seen in our own lives. He said, but you know something? What about the other 21-day period? What about the time of Simcha? He says, it's much more difficult to achieve this sense of unity and this shared bond he said, oftentimes, when someone else is celebrating a happy occasion, and you aren't. And this is the dark pocket in our hearts that I think that is true and exists, and that we, we should be aware of. And I've noticed something, and this is a, perhaps a subtle thing, and maybe you'll complain that it's an unfair thing, but I, 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 I want to say it anyway, because I, I think it's true. And um, at least the idea is true. 
which is that I've noticed that a lot of times, and I've seen this many, many times in my own life, that sometimes when someone has, uh, is celebrating a happy occasion, they have just received some good news, the person who hears it will say the following, I'm so happy for you. Right? Now, listen, I want to tell you how I hear those words. I'm so happy for you. For me, I'm not so happy. <laughs> you know, it's like, I could take or leave your good news, frankly. <laughs> but for you, I'm happy. It, to me, this is, I, this is very sad to me. This is very sad. And, and the reason why I, I sort of introduced this thought with a couple of apologies, because I think most people who say it aren't doing that on purpose, aren't pur- doing it on purpose, and may even strenuously object that that's what's going on inside of them. But nonetheless, that's what the words seem to suggest. So I'm going to suggest a, an alternative phrasing, okay? Which is, if you hear some good news from someone else, how about these words? I'm so happy. Mm-hmm. Right? Because I heard Reb Shlomo say that if... if you can't appreciate someone else's joy, you have no concept of what joy is. If you can't appreciate someone else's joy, you have no concept of what joy is. And of course, the truth is, on an even deeper level, we're all one soul. So, someone else's simcha really is your simcha. And on a very real level, right now. I mean... But this is something that we have to, uh, this is something that we have to work on. And as I've mentioned before, you see, we all have souls. And these souls are a piece of God. And it's, they're like these incredible, you know, it's like a thousand suns, you know, in terms of what the power and the awesomeness of a, of a soul is. But there's a barrier between our soul and between and the world. And what is that barrier? That barrier is our personality traits, also known in Torah study as our midos. And in, you can't transfer the power of your soul into the world unless you rectify and elevate and refine your character traits. Those are the pathways through which the power of the soul, the light of the soul, comes into the world. And if you want to just have a, just a, a way of visualizing it, imagine that there are all these windows, but they all have curtains on them. Unless you part the curtains, which is rectifying your character trait, the light can't come through into the world. And so, and so, and so that's something that, that, that we all need to maybe work on. Maybe some of us more than others, maybe some of us less, whatever it is. But, but to allow that unifying, shared simcha thing to take place. Now, now I want to go deeper. I want to add uh, some ideas to this um, teaching from, from the Marsha. And, um, and, and to do it in the following way. You know... We said that there are two 21-day periods. Now, listen to this. Something, something very, very interesting. There's a name of Hashem. See, 
let me just introduce this thought just with a, a uh, just some basic Jewish um, thought here, just so that we've got clarity. Uh, Hashem is infinite, and Hashem is one. And how God manifests Himself in the world varies on what level we're holding on. So in other words, if we're very worthy, He manifests Himself, it's always the same God, it's only one God, God is the only power, but He'll manifest Himself in one way. So, for instance, in what we call Miras HaRachamim, this is the name Yudke Bavke, right? The Tetragrammaton. Uh, so that's the four letter name of Hashem. He'll express himself in, in this way. If there's stuff that we should not be doing, and yet we're doing it, and we're sort of kind of being very defiant and rebellious, sometimes Hashem will manifest himself in what we call Midas Hadin, which is this aspect of judgment. And then there's a name which correlates with that manifestation of God's interaction in the world. Elohim, right? So, so that's, that's something else. And we've got different descriptions of how God interacts with us, but it's only one God, and it's the God of Israel, it's the same God. But to describe how God is interacting with us at that moment, we'll use different names to describe. Okay? So that's just a primer in understanding the different names used for Hashem in the Torah. And uh, with that in mind, let's just reintroduce the thought of the Marsha. He says that there's two 21-day periods in the calendar. Okay? And uh, we know the first one describes exile, the destruction of the Holy Temple, the Beis HaMikdash. Now, there's a name of Hashem which has the gematria of 21. And that's Ehyeh. And it means, it's translated as I will be. And Hashem uses this name with Moshe, with Moses, at the time of the burning bush. And Moshe says to God, when God tells Moshe, now has come the time for the deliverance, the salvation of the Jewish people, you are going to be the emissary to take them out of Egypt. And Moshe says, who should I tell them sent me? And Hashem says back to him, Ehyeh Asher Ehyeh. He uses a double repetition of this name, which is the Gematria 21. And it's translated as, I will be what I will be. So, here you see there are two 21-day periods in the calendar, and I'm pointing out that they correlate with this Pasuk, this verse from the Torah, where Hashem uses this 21-point name two times to describe how God is with us in exile. Now, I just want to give you a little bit more context of, of that conversation between Moshe and God at Mount Sinai. By the way, the burning bush was at Mount Sinai. I don't know if everyone knows that. That's, that's important because, because that's where the entire 
uh, beginning of the taking of the Jews out of Egypt begins was not just at the burning bush, but at Mount Sinai. And that's important because that's where we're going back to. God is taking us out of Egypt for the whole point of bringing us back to Mount Sinai. So in other words, there's this unbelievable symmetry that's taking place right there. And it's a further proof, not that we need any proofs, but it's a further proof that the whole reason why we were taken out of Egypt was in order to bring us to Mount Sinai. Now, to receive the Torah, of course. Now, Moshe says something back to, to God. And this is in Gomorrah Brochus, and Tet Amid Beis, 9b. And it goes, it goes like this, like a, a fascinating thing. So, again, Moshe says to Hashem, who should I tell them brought me? Right? And Hashem says to Moshe, I, I will be that I will be. Right? Ekiah asher Ekiah. Okay? And that's translated as, just like I'm with him in this exile, I will be with him in all future exiles. And Moshe says, this isn't the last exile? <laughs> what? You want me to tell the Jews in Egypt who have been suffering for 210 years that you know who sent me? The God who's taking you out of this exile is going to take you out of future exiles? I mean, that, that's really what you want me to tell them? So, so and, and by the way, by the way, that's very strong support for another thought, just that you should know. Which is that if, and this blew my mind when I, when I first heard it, if you just read the account in the, in the Chumash, in the, in the, in the Torah, of uh, Moshe at the burning bush with God, you'd think that it lasted a very short period, a few minutes maybe, you know? Maybe it was a few minutes that seemed like forever, but a few minutes on a, on a watch. It lasted for seven days. For seven days, Moshe said no to Hashem. And the teaching that I heard which I love, is that Moshe was telling God, no, this has to be the final redemption right now. And you can see, you can see a strong support for that being Moshe's intention of refusing to do it, not just because he didn't feel as though he was up to the task of leading them out of Egypt, but that he wanted this to be the final redemption from the fact that he understood that there were going to be future exiles. So, so Moshe's Kavana, his intention was very, very holy in, in terms of refusing the mission. He was trying to, to bargain with God, basically, to, to make that the, the, the final, final fixing. And by the way, there was a price that Moshe paid. Because Moshe was supposed to be the high priest. He was supposed to be the Kohen Gadol. And because he, he took too long to say yes, God said, okay, your brother's going to do it. So... You know, that's uh, just some, some historical context. But anyway, God hears Moshe's point, and the way it's explained is that Moshe didn't fully understand what God was saying, because in the next verse, God says, yeah, tell them Ehyeh sent you. So it seems, like, it seems like God agreed with Moshe's point that there shouldn't be at this time any mention of future exiles to the Jewish people in Egypt, but 
Seemingly, that's what Hashem had in mind all the time. It's just Moshe didn't grasp it in the moment. Okay. Now, from this you see that, that this name, you see, you know, we don't want to just say Hashem's name all the time. So we, when we're just kind of using it over and over again, we say Ekiah instead of Ehia. Okay, so if you're confused by my changing the pronunciation, that's, that's why I'm doing it. So when we see this name, Ekiah Asher Ekiah, we see that it shows that God is with us at all times of our exile. Okay? Now listen to this. It came to me and I just almost kind of fell out of my chair when I realized this, which is the Parsha that we're reading this week, Parsha's Masai, Uh, recounts all of the travels of the Jews in the desert between Egypt and Israel. And our rabbis teach that this is um, a model of all of the exiles, all of the stops that we go through in our own life. Because we're leaving Egypt and we're going into Israel. That stands for leaving exile and going into redemption. Because the land of Israel means redemption. And so, so the, the stops that we make between Egypt and Israel during these 40 years of wandering, right, symbolize the entire exile, the entire historical exile. Now, how many stops were, were there? 42. 42. And what did we just say? This name, Ekia, Asher Ekia, that God is with us through all exiles, this name adds up to 21. So 21 plus 21 equals 42. So here we see that God is showing us that He's with us through all of our stops, all of the journeys of our lives, all of our exiles. An unbelievable thing. Just how utterly precise every aspect of the Torah is. You see... I think that it's very, very important for us to constantly appreciate the precision that exists in this world. And, um, you know, they've got this unbelievable particle accelerator. I, I just saw some pictures of it. It looks like it's, it's one of the sets from Star Wars. It's absolutely incredible. And burn Switzerland. Just look it up on the internet. This, it's it's enormously huge and it's like under a mountain and they're sending particles to smash against each other basically at the speed of light. You know, it's absolutely amazing. And now they feel as though they may have just discovered what they call the God particle. Right? Which is this, this, this essentially the glue that holds all of reality together. And I saw a little video of it last, last night. Um... And it's describing the creation of the world. It's describing the Kabbalistic model of Simpson. It's, it's absolutely amazing how physics is catching up to what we've been saying for thousands of years. That God took his infinite light and he compressed it and compressed it and compressed it and compressed it until it became materiality itself. That's called Simpson. That's one of the aspects of Simpson. You know how present day 
society, calls what I just said, E equals MC squared. That energy times, what is it, E equals MC squared, times matter or mass at, at the speed of light squared, right, it becomes materiality. In other words, this shift from energy to the material. And we've got the formula, thanks to Einstein, how, how actually it happens. But the point is, energy, this is Hashem's light. Materiality, this is the universe itself. And they're discovering all the, all the particulars of the, of the science aspect of it. It's amazing. It's quite amazing. It's amazing. But what does that really tell us? It tells us that God is absolutely everywhere. And for those people who say they're not spiritual, my answer is always, you're made out of spirituality. <laughs> all the spiritual is is condensed. All, all materiality is is condensed spirituality. That's all it is. That's all it is. It's condensed energy. It's condensed godliness. That's all it is. And of course, it also shows us that God really is absolutely everywhere and in everything. Absolutely. There's no other way to express it. And science is, is giving us the, the beautiful model of the outside aspect of it. Remember, science addresses the hows. Torah addresses the whys. Okay? So, I know that I'm here. Now the question is, why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? And you know something, if you only need to know one, the why or the how, pick the why. Because, you know, I can know all the hows, but now if I'm not using my life in the way that I need to use my life, then what difference does it make if I know all the hows? You know, it's sort of like, drive that person to the hospital, he's very sick. Well, I know how to drive him to the hospital. I've got a car key, I put it in the ignition. Now, let me tell you how the car engine starts. It's a very interesting process. Now, I'm going to tell you the shortest route to the hospital. Are you driving him to the hospital? No, I'm telling you how I would drive him to the hospital. You have to drive him to the hospital. Generally, at this time of the day, there's a lot of traffic on Olympic. What I'm going to do is take some of the side streets and then you shoot right up Williman because there's a light there. A lot of people don't know that. Get right to Cedars-Sinai. Are you taking him to the hospital? No. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> So, I mean, it's, uh, it's absurd. It's absurd. We can become experts in the hows. How it got invented. How, 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 how. But what are you doing here in this world? Why are you here? This is the question. And the answer is to serve God. To reveal His oneness in the world. It's going to bring harmony to all these different energies that are just rioting and ricocheting and exploding around us. We'll bring harmony to the entire universe. To love each other, to have an open heart, to celebrate with each other, not just in times of sadness, but in times of joy, right? Just to, just to be one with one another. And uh, we can do it. We can do it. Okay, so, so I want to share with you, I want to share with you kind of like a, a plan, get, get more practical.
and um, and uh, someone asked me a question, and I was researching it on the internet, and it um, it sent me to a site. I was so happy that I found this. Sent me to a book, and I ordered the book, and I'm reading the book right now. It's called The Rebbe's Daughter. And it's a very, very interesting, very rare, perhaps unique bit of testimony. And what it is, is it's written by the daughter of the Koznitzer Rebbe. This was the Koznitzer Rebbe, Yechil Moshe, who lived at around 1900. Okay? In the late 1800s, early 1900s. He was the Koznitzer Rebbe at that point. And the book is written from the point of view of a 12-year-old girl growing up in a Hasidic court, in a Hasidic dynasty. What that would be like. Now remember, this is before, not just before World War II, but before World War I. And Koznitz was also a rural place. So, you know, I didn't kind of appreciate the fact that there were kind of different kind of flavors of Hasidic culture one which was more urban-based, and which, one which was more ur- rural-based. And the reason why it's important, this idea of rural-based Hasidus, is because the Baal Shem Tov, the, the founder of Hasidus, and all the early Hasidim, were really kind of in this more rural mode. So it's an even more sort of authentic, if you will, sort of like expression of, of, of the, you know, the, the roots of Hasidus. So here's this memoir written later in life by a woman who lived this and she's writing about all the senses and the sounds and the experiences of being a a young girl with her father as the Rebbe being surrounded by Torah and mitzvahs and and all the different customs and the different holidays and just, just, it's it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's really, it's so beautiful. Um, so, so what's the story behind this book? And, and I want to share some specific ideas with you um, that, that I saw there. So, it was translated by uh, Rabbi Nehemia Pollen. And here's what he says in the introduction. Very interesting story. He says that he was writing a book about um, uh, Colonius Kalman Shapiro, also known as the Pia Sesna Rebbe, also known as the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto, also known as the Eish Kodesh, also known as the Rebbe of the Holy Hunchback. If you know that um, story from Reb Shlomo, if you don't, find it, just Google it, the Holy Hunchback, and read that. And if you, if you don't cry at the end of it, go and talk to someone about that. <laughs> Why your heart is so hard. You know, it's an incredible, beautiful, heartbreaking story. Um, so, so anyway, so the, the, the Eish Kodesh was really one of the great Hasidic masters and um, was a deste- descendant of the Koznitzer Magid, the Koznitzer Rebbe. The Koznitzer Rebbe, by the way, was one of the early Hasidic masters and one of, was one of the main people to bring Hasidus to Poland. And you know, Poland became the center of Hasidus. So he's really one of the formative, most important uh, people in the whole history of, of the Jewish people, but certainly of, 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 of Hasidus, the, the Koznitzer Magid. Um, so anyway, so, so, 
So Rabbi Pollen was writing about the the Koshnitzer, the uh, the uh, the Eish Kodesh, and um, he's in a secondhand furniture store in Israel, and he sees a bookcase, and there's one book on the bookcase, just you know, not to sell the book, but just so you should see what the bookcase looks like with a book in it. You know, so it's kind of an advertisement to buy the bookcase, right? And he notices it's an old book, it's a thin book, and he notices on the spine it says Shapira. Well, Shapira is the family name of the Rebbe that he's writing about at that point, the Ish Kodesh. And he says, oh, that's strange, you know. So he picks up the book and he opens it, and he finds out that this was a cousin of the Ish Kodesh, and that this was the, this book that was written, you know, the 12-year-old girl's view of, of what it's like to grow up with your father as a Rebbe. So he, he translated it into English. Again, it's called The Rebbe's Daughter. And, um, and he sort of rescued it from, from obscurity. And so, so here are a couple of details that I've, that I've seen in the book that I want to share with you. So he quotes that, and this, is, this teaching is derived from like a, a sort of a novel reading of, the, of a verse in the Torah, and I can't reconstruct it for you exactly how they get this teaching, but I'll tell you the point of the teaching. And this, apparently, Hasidim used to say all the time that this was one of their bywords in terms of serving God. And what it was is, a person has to, you have to abolish haste. Now, haste means quickness, like not, 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 not uh, alacrity, not what we call zrizuskeit, right? You know, running to do a mitzvah that, that we have to do. It's a very high level. But haste is the sense of you're being pulled in five different directions. You know, you, you haven't got focus. It's just haste. You're just doing something very quickly uh, without any mindfulness. So it says, abolish haste. Abolish haste. Abolish haste. So a person has to have this in mind. And I thought to myself, you know something, especially in America, 2011, you don't he- hear the word um, haste a lot. Or, or, or abolish, by the way. <laughs> but, um, but I thought to myself, what's maybe a more contemporary translation of that? And I thought to myself, Stress. You know, stress and haste, I think, if it's not the exact same concept, there's certainly a, a, a giant overlap between them. We live with stress. And we think that stress is intrinsic to reality itself, but it's extrinsic. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. You see, there's certain things... And by the way, psychotherapy is very good for this. There's certain things that people live with and they think that this is part of just the landscape of reality itself. That this is the world. That you can't have a world without these elements. Or I can't have my interior life. Or I can't have, I can't have it without this thing because it's always been there. And a lot of times that comes from our upbringing. In other words, if you had a, a parent say or a very you know, influential figure in your life who would always say negative things to you. You're so stupid. You're so bad. You're so clumsy. What's the matter with you? Unfortunately, a lot of people have 
grown up with this type of influence in their life. And just to give one example. And so they grow up and that's their interior dialogue with themselves. I'm so stupid, I'm so clumsy, I'm so, you know, incapable and things like this. And because it's so much a part of their lives, they don't realize that it's not actually part of the fabric of reality itself. But it's so glommed on to their notion of reality that they don't realize that this is something that can be removed from their consciousness. Now, these things take time and it takes work. But, there, but, but what's even more devastating is that they don't even know to question that this is an alien thing. They think that this is normal. You understand? Now, by the way, just so you know, it says in the Gomorrah that the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, goes by seven names. And that the seventh most devastating name is Tzaphon, which means hidden. Which means that, that there's a level of the evil inclination that gets inside of us that's so hidden that we think it's us. And we don't understand that it's this extrinsic thing. That it's this, it's this thing that's not us and that can be removed. So, so, so like I say, therapy is very valuable for this. If someone, if you're walking around in life and you feel always like you're imbalanced or you're like, someone's, like your thoughts are kind of always just kind of knocking you off balance and things like this, then look into therapy because a person doesn't have to be in that state. And a lot of things that you probably think are normal and that everyone experiences are, are not are, are not the case, and can be removed from your from your from your psychic landscape basically, and you can achieve states of what we call menucha sanefish and yishuvadas, which means a tranquility of the soul and a stillness of the mind. Right? Doesn't mean you're not thinking, but it just means that that there isn't this like you know bullet ricocheting you know around the interior of your skull constantly. So, so I want to say that stress is one of these things that even, even those of us who, who, who perhaps aren't in a state where we need to see someone professionally, nonetheless experience in a very uh, enervating, unnerving way. And we think that this, this stress, oh, I have to do this, I have to do that, I didn't do this, I didn't do that, I have to go there, I have to go there, I have to go there. And being pulled in ten different directions, that this is normal. And that this is just contemporary society. So when the Hasidim say, abolish haste, it's taking that moment before you do a mitzvah, before you enter into the world, before you enter into a conversation, and you say, you know something? That's extrinsic. That's that's not really part of everything. I can just remove that. That's, that's a dirty tablecloth on my table. You know what? All those feelings, let me just fold up the tablecloth, just put it to the side. Ah, now what is it that you need to know? How can I help you? What do you want to talk about? What's going on? Abolish haste. Get rid of the stress before you do your thing. Okay, that's number one. Now, number two, and I think this is a beautiful, beautiful concept. 
And they talked about this as part of the path. Rabbi Palin pointed to that, that this is, was part of the avoda, part of the flavor of the service of Koshnitz, right? Which was turning life into art. Turning moments and turning divine service into an aesthetic experience. So let's, let's figure out what that means. Let's talk about that for a moment. You see, a lot of people are like, Here's their relationship with the Torah and mitzvahs and God. I did the mitzvah or I didn't do the mitzvah. Or I got into the mitzvah or I already did the mitzvah. Or did I do the mitzvah? I don't even remember if I did the mitzvah because I was so distracted. So it's like, that's how a lot of us go through our service, our heavenly service. Okay, but there's another way. So step number one, abolish haste. Abolish haste. Okay, now I'm focusing in on the moment. So now let me give an example just to illustrate what I'm talking about. Let's say, unfortunately, this is something that most of us see on a semi-regular basis. Say you're walking down the street and half a block in front of you, you see a homeless person picking through a garbage can. Okay? So you want to help them. You want to give them some money, some tzedakah, right? Some charity. So a lot of people, they're either going to do it or they're not going to do it. But let's, let's get a little bit higher than that, okay? So the first thing you do is you see you've got a half a block between you and that person. First thing you do is abolish haste. Get rid of the stress. Go, okay. Now, how can I do this in the most beautiful way? In other words, this moment is a canvas, a blank canvas that's being presented to you. How are you going to paint it? How are you going to do what you want to do in the most beautiful way? So you think to yourself, well, you know something? If I, if I continue walking in a straight path, I will approach this man from his back. And then if I say something to him, maybe I'll frighten him. And he'll turn around and he'll be scared. Okay, you know what? Why don't I change the way I'm walking? Now I'm going to approach him so that he sees me coming. So now he's not going to be frightened. All right, already there's a sense of ease, a sense of peace. You're already doing it on a higher level. Then maybe you say to yourself, okay, when I get to him, let's say I want to give him a dollar. When I get to him, I'm going to take out my wallet, and then I'm going to open it up, then I'm going to try to, oh, that's a 20. That's, all right, that's a little beyond what I want to do right now. It's a five. I know I got a dollar in there somewhere. Oh, here's a dollar. You know what? How about, since you've got a half a block between you and him, how about you pull your wallet out right now and you take out the dollar right now so that you have it in your hand so that the whole thing can be seamless and and beautiful so that he's not embarrassed while you're standing in front of him fishing through your wallet. So you have the dollar now. You're approaching him from the front. You know, so, and I'm sure you can add a lot of different things. Now you say to yourself, wait a second, what do I look like? Well, how about I have a smile on my face? You know, the sages say that the whites of your teeth when you smile and you give charity to someone nourish the person like milk. And by the way, if you 
If you're ever in a situation where you want to give charity to someone and you don't have any money, you can smile at them. Because it says your smile nourishes them like milk. And I, I saw a rabbi ask the question, why doesn't it say like water? Because on a hot day, if you're sitting on a sidewalk and you're all strung out, a glass of water is pretty nice too. So why not say water? So, so this, this, this rabbi, I, I, don't, I don't remember who said it, but said, well, milk gives you nutrients, and those nutrients help you to grow. And it's the same thing with a smile. A smile gives a person self-esteem, and that self-esteem will propel him to better heights down the line, just like the nutrients from the milk. So now, I'm walking so that he can see me. I've got the dollar prepared. I've put a smile on my face. And the Gomorrah teaches that if you give someone some money and you say nice things to them as you're giving it to them, that that's seven times more precious than if you just give it to them without saying anything. Ah, so what should I say to him? I can say anything to him. You know? So you figure out what I want to say, you know? And then you make your art. You make your art. And... Now, this is just me talking, but I just want to share with you a just something that I, I think is true. You see, these actions that we do, our mitzvahs, they live forever. And they also become part of our olam haba. We are, so to speak, furnishing our eternal home, or, or the olam hanashamas, where we are before the resurrection of the dead, anyway. All of our merits take on some sort of spiritual dimension. And the more awesome they are, and I don't know what the correlations are in the next dimension. I don't, I don't, I don't have the vocabulary to describe it. I don't know what it is. But we know that a, a bigger act, a more selfless act, will manifest, manifest itself in that, in that dimension, in that realm, in a more exalted way. Right? That... that on those levels, we can speak accurately. What it looks like exactly, I don't know. So, permit me just to take some artistic license right now. And maybe this will turn out to be accurate. I don't know. But, but just follow the thought. You know, I was thinking, if you've, ever, if you've ever kind of done a little bit of hiking and stuff like that, every once in a while you'll see like a little waterfall. You know, like... Um, you know, the water just kind of goes down a, a few inches. And then it's like a little kind of waterfall till it goes into the stream and continues on. It's always pretty. It's always nice, you know. But some of us have been fortunate enough to see like waterfalls that are like hundreds of feet high. <laughs> like awesome, you know. They just like, they pour down. It's like, it's great. It's like really amazing. So... Can you imagine, I'm walking up to this person on the street, and I'm just kind of, you know, hey, here you go, right? Or, I'm going through all the steps that we just talked about, and I do it that way. Can you imagine what this looks like, in terms of the world, in terms of the next world, in terms of our Olamaba? You know, it could be like this little trickling thing, or somehow as part of our reality, in the next world, there's this awesome, like, Niagara Falls type, like, type setting. You know, we, we can do that. We can do that. And we're the beneficiaries. 
I mean, that's not the reason why we should do it, but it's, it's also true. We should do it, L'shem Shemayim, for the sake of heaven. But it would be inaccurate to say that we aren't the beneficiaries of such actions, of such kindness. And so this is just another way of visualizing turning life into art and to appreciate all these blank canvases that are presenting themselves to us all of the time. All of the time. So, I just want to conclude with, uh, with, one, uh, with one thought that I saw in the Gemara. I saw it with my own eyes. I'll tell you where it is if you want to see it with your own eyes. Well, tell you tell you one brief thing beforehand. See, the Gomorrah in Sanhedrin, it's on uh, 105B, if you want to find it. If you have the art scroll, it's 105B4. Brings a, a verse from Mishle, from Proverbs. It says, The wounds inflicted by a friend are trustworthy, while the kisses of an enemy are the reverse. Meaning to say... If someone who hates you starts doing something nice, now sometimes enemies can turn into friends, and that's a, that's a beautiful thing. But sometimes, you know, the, the kindness from an enemy, you have to be a little, you have to look a little bit closely at to make sure it's coming from the right place. And conversely, sometimes the wounds inflicted by a friend, if it's a real true friend, that they're not as bad as they seem. That really, if that friend is coming from a good place, you know, maybe there's some future benefit, maybe there's some growth, maybe there's some positive that will come from it, even if in the present moment we're experiencing it as hurt. This is the wisdom of King Solomon that I'm quoting to you right now. And so, what we have to understand is that these three weeks, this period that we're going through right now, is there a better friend than Hashem? And the Torah, you know, among the different relationships and paradigms that, that, that we have with God, there's, there's father and son, parent and child. There's, there's, there's also master and servant. There's also, there's also friend, best friend. That's, that's also from the Torah. That that's a real paradigm in terms of our relationship. And so even these wounds that, that have been inflicted upon us have come from Hashem. You know, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time in the name of the Sanzer Rebbe, the Sanzer Rebbe, we should never know from it, lost a child. And later on that day, as he was going to the funeral, he seemed to be in a very, very happy state. Right? And the Hasidim couldn't even imagine, how, how, how is it possible that, I understand he's the Rebbe, but how could it be that he's so happy right now? Right? And they asked him, and he said, you know, he says, I'll explain. He said, I've just suffered a terrible blow. And he said, it's like someone whacked me on the back. He said, but then I turned around to see who did it, and I saw it was my best friend. And so, that's these three weeks. That's these three weeks. And we have to understand that even though it's coming from this place, but really it's coming from our best friend. And that good is going to result... Like we said, these days are going to turn into holidays. This is Hashem's promise to us. But now I just want to just finish with this last thing, because this is mind-blowing, really. Just very quickly. And if you want to see this with your own eyes, this is on 
Another paradigm that that our relationship with God is compared to is two lovers. And this is from Shir Shirim, the Song of Songs. And the Gomorrah says that at the time of redemption, that at the time of redemption, what can it be compared to? Now listen to this, like in a million years, I mean, to tell you just who the sages of Israel are, okay, this is thousands of years ago, just how awesome their understanding and how, how deep their love and, and intimacy with God is, alright? Just in terms of how, how profoundly they understood God. They said at the time of the redemption of the world, right? When God takes us out of exile, he said, they said, what can it be compared to? And this is Rabbi Yochanan. He said it can be compared to a lion and a lioness about to begin mating. And that anyone who puts a separation between them, like a garment between them, watch out. Because at that time, can you imagine what that means? A lion and a lioness who are about to begin mating, what the level of attractive force that is? That's comparing heaven and earth, God and the Jewish people at the time of the redemption. And anyone who gets in the way, forget about it. 